This is the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church Reno, we love God, love others, and make a difference. For more information, visit lifechurchreno.com. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message impacts you. Good morning. Hey, welcome to Life Church. I'm so glad you're here. If you're joining us online, I'm so glad that you're joining us online. If you're live, great to see you guys today. Let me ask you a question. Imagine your house is on fire. You can grab one item. It's not a person because people aren't items. It's not a pet. You can grab one item. What do you have a prized possession? Maybe something that someone gave you, you inherited, maybe you collect stuff. Anyone have a prized possession they want to tell us about? Yes, you raised your hand. A little green dress, little green dress that from when she was adopted at two years old from Ethiopia. That's super cool. That's super cool. Someone else, a prized possession. Raise a hand, anyone? Prize, you over there. Yes, Dave. Your guitar. You know, because I've, I've, I've actually read that if a guy carries a guitar case, women then find him 20% more attractive. <laughs> so good move. Good pull. Well played. Well played. Another prized possession. Prized possession. Yes. Your phone. That is the most honest thing anyone said today. <laughs> one last one. One last prized possession. Yes. Your family photos, that's super, 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 super good. Hey, I wanna talk to you today. Have you ever thought about the fact that you, your follower of Jesus, are God's prized possession? Let me read you a verse out of 1 Peter. If you have your Bibles, go over to 1 Peter chapter two. 1 Peter two, verse nine. We're gonna look at this larger passage here in a minute. Here's what Peter says. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession or God's prized possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here's what Peter's doing. He's uh, in the next part of the book. He's going to be talking to us about what does it look like to live as a follower of Jesus? But, but, but what we have to understand is this, how, how we live flows, as, as followers of Jesus, how we live flows out of who we are because of what Jesus has done for us. And so what, what Peter is doing here in this passage is he's unpacking, and it's power-packed, he's unpacking just exactly who we are as followers of Jesus because of what Jesus has done for us. And so I want to talk to you a little bit. What does it look like, the fact that, that we are God's prized possession? And so let me read you a little larger passage here. First Peter 2, verse 4, he says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Here's the first thing. Because we're God's prized possession in a dying world, we are alive people. He uses this oxymoron, living stone. Many times if we think of, if there's anything in the world that is not alive, it's a rock. And maybe you've even said, oh, that thing there, it's as dead as a rock. 
And yet Peter says that, that Jesus is the living stone. And then he goes on to say, you're like living stones. I think it's always fascinating anytime in the Bible and New Testament when we see that, that Jesus is something and then we're told that we're the same thing. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He also said, you're the light of the world. So here, Peter, he says, Jesus is the living stone. As we come to him, as we remain or dwell in relationship with him, as we come to him, the living stone, we too are like living stones. And now the thing is uh, about a stone is a stone is dead. And so for something to be a living stone, it's a dead thing that then has been made alive. And, and so Jesus, the one who was dead as a rock, that the one who was dead was made alive, Jesus, the living stone, and then we who were spiritually dead have been made alive by Jesus, the living stone. And so we who were dead have been made alive by the one who was dead and has been made alive. He, the living stone, we too are like living stones. In a dying world, we are alive people. And, and, and so his life becomes our life because we are in him. And so really this, this theme of life and, and the life that we have in Jesus, it's a, it's a theme out for, in First Peter. Uh, in First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter talks about this living hope that we have because of Jesus. And later he talks about the living word of God. And so now we see this living stone, this whole aspect that we've been made alive by the one who was dead and has been made alive. It's this big theme we see in the Bible. It ties into what the apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter two and Ephesians two Paul's doing kind of this snapshot of every person before they meet Jesus, and then a snapshot of what our lives are like because of what Jesus has done. Here's what he says. He says, as for you, you were dead in your sins, but because of his great love for us, skipping down to verse four, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our sins. There's this whole thing that, that we, because we're God's prized possession, we are alive in a dying world. It affects our life now as we live, and then it affects how we view death one day. And any of you big video game players in, in the present? Anyone big video game players? Anyone grow up playing a lot of video games? Anyone want to be honest? Now, I, I played a lot of video games from like age nine to 13, and then I discovered that girls were more fascinating than video games. Some people never discover that. Now, when you're playing a video game, and a lot of video games, you, you, have, you, you can die in the video game. And whether it's Mario and you fall into a ditch or you're playing a shoot 'em up game, and, and there's really two different ways this can go. There's the situation where you're playing the video game and you've got three lives, and if you, you can die once, and, and, but you get another life, you die a second time, you get another life, you die a third time, it's game over. There's that sort of way, and then there's the way where you're playing a video game, it's not that you have multiple lives, but like you have this meter at the top that shows how much life you have remaining, your life force. And there's things you can do in the game to get more, things you can do in the game to get less. But if, if, has there ever been that moment in your life where work's not going the way you wish it was? 
And family life's not as easy as you wish it was. And overall circumstances are challenging and, and you just feel so deeply tired. It's not the sort of tired where a nap's gonna fix it. It's not the sort of tired where a good night's sleep's gonna fix it. But you sort of feel like if I was a video game that my, the life force has drained down to like 5% remaining and now it's flashing red at you, like, like your life force is about empty. Have you ever had that kind of moment? Four people have had some tough days. Great, that's good. And so, uh, and, and so the wonder is this, that, that because we are God's prized possession, that, in, that we are alive people, that, 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 that we are fully alive. And so in those moments in our life, where everything has drained the life force out of us and we're down to that last 5%, that, that there we, we have this access to the life of Jesus and the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, talking to the woman at the well, he called it living water. And so in those moments where I just don't have enough life in me, if I will, will then just turn to him and say, Jesus, I don't, have, I don't have enough life in me for all that's being sucked out of me. And so would you and the person of your Holy Spirit fill me up with your life, this, this aspect that we are alive people. It changes how we live today and it affects how we look at that moment where one day we're gonna die. Now, death is one of those things. Some people never think about it. Some people think about it on certain occasions when our mortality is threatened or we go to a, a memorial service and we think about it in that context. Some people think about it a lot. Larry King, who died earlier this year, he was 87 when he died six years ago. He did this interview in the New York Times and in the interviewer talking about how fixated Larry King at 81 years old was on death. The interviewer wrote, Sean King, Larry's seventh wife. Now, if something will drain the life out of you, it's being married seven times. told me that Larry talked so much about his demise that he started to upset their teenage sons and she had to tell him to knock it off. He kept saying, listen, I'm not gonna be much around much longer, boys, Sean said. Whatever you do, don't let your mother put me in a home, Larry would say. Recently, Larry and Sean met with some insurance and lawyer types to go over their family trust. They were talking about his will and who got what and the tax ramifications. After about 20 minutes, Larry said, wait a minute. I won't be here when this happens. I won't exist. Everything in that conversation had nothing to do with me. For the emphatically non-religious king can't see how one's life story can end well if he winds up in the ground. Apparently King at 81 years old is still trying to avoid death. The article continues, says King takes four human growth hormone pills every day. And he claims that he feels great. But in case of death, King has arranged to have his body frozen and then thawed out when researchers discover a cure for whatever killed him, the so-called cryonics approach. King told me later that the people behind cryonics, quote, are all nuts. But at least he knows, but at least if he knows that he will be frozen, he will die, get this, with a shred of hope. King said, other people have no now, here's the thing. Interestingly enough, after King died in January, they ended up not freezing it. But this idea that 
King said, my only hope is to get frozen and then one day in the future, if they could fix, fix what's wrong with me, I can come back to life. Otherwise, I have no hope. But, but the good news, because you are God's prized possession, because of what Jesus has done, that in, in a world filled with death, you are alive, both in this life and then knowing that for us, death has lost its sting and that we have this living hope because we have been made alive as living stones. We who were dead spiritually, ultimately we're gonna be dead forever. That we who were dead have been made alive by the one who was dead and who conquered death. We have been made living stones by the living stone. And so we are alive in a world that is dying. Here's second truth. We are in a divided world as God's prized possession. In a divided world, we are united people. First Peter 2, verse 5, it says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house or into a spiritual temple. It's, uh, it's uh, interesting that for a couple of reasons that Peter would use this metaphor. One, the, the word Peter actually means little rock. And, and, and Jesus says, Peter, I can't help but think that as Peter's writing this and you as living stones are being built into a spiritual house, can't help but think that Peter's remembering that moment in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, and I tell you that you are Peter, you are the little rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, Peter understood that Jesus wasn't saying he was gonna build his church on Peter. Peter, Jesus was gonna build his church on himself. And, and, but I can't help but think as Peter's writing that, that he's remembering that moment when Jesus says these things. And, and he says, but, but you, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Now, here's the thing. If you've got one stone, there's some things it can do. Makes a great paperweight. You can throw it at a friend. Turn it into a pet rock if you lived a long time ago. But you take a bunch of stones and you put them together and you can build a house. If you've ever been to Europe, there's places where there's, they build houses here. You know, you drive, they're building so fast. You drive by one day, the foundation's down. You go by a couple of weeks later, now they've got it framed. A couple of weeks later, now they got it all walled in. And in a few months, you just got this house. And they, they build them the last 50, maybe 50 or 100 years. We go to other parts of the world, and in this part of the world, in the Middle East, two by four is hard to come by, rock really easy to come by. But you go to other parts of the world, maybe you've been to Europe and places where there are these stone houses that have literally stood for centuries and centuries and centuries. And so Peter is saying, you who've been made alive by the living stone, you are living stones. And as you guys come together, you're being formed into this spiritual house. One rock by itself is, is useful for some, but a bunch of rocks come together, something special can happen. It's this picture that we live in this divided and polarized world. But, but that when we as followers of Jesus unite around him and, and we come together, something special happens. In a divided world, we are united people. There's a, I don't know if you know a lot about termites. I didn't know a lot about termites till I read this article in the New Yorker from a few years ago. It says termite mounds can reach as high as 30 feet tall. Proportionately, Based on their size, that's the equivalent of humans building something 5,400 feet tall, roughly four times the height of the, of the Empire State Building. 
The interior of a termite mound is an intricate structure of interweaving tunnels and passageways, radiating chambers, galleries, archways, and spiral staircases. To build a mound, termites move vast amounts of mud and water. In the course of a year, 11 pounds of termites can move about 364 pounds of dirt and 3,300 pounds of water. The point of all this construction is not to have a place to dwell. The colony lives in a nest six to seven feet below the mound, but to be able to breathe. The mound acts as a lung for the colony, managing the exchange of gases, leveraging small changes in wind speed to inhale and exhale. Termites appear to do all of this without any centralized planning. There are no architects, engineers, or blueprints. The termite mound isn't just a building. It's much more like a body, a self-regulating organic process that always reacts to its changing environment. Get this, scientists claim that individual termites are not very intelligent. They lack memory and the ability to learn. Put a few termites into a Petri dish and they wander around aimlessly. Get this, but put enough termites together in the right conditions and they will build you a cathedral. It's this picture. He says, you guys are coming together as a bunch of living stones and God has a plan for you all individually, but it's so much more powerful when you come together. You're built into this spiritual house. See, this thing is, there's, no, there's this kind of theme that we're about to see Peter unpack more of, of, of there's these things in the Old Testament in the physical realm that, that really are foreshadowing pictures of what God's gonna ultimately do in the spiritual realm. And, and so he says, hey, that temple, that temple that, that, that was built in the Old Testament, the temple that was standing, when Peter's writing this, this temple that would soon after this be destroyed. So there's this physical temple and in the Old Testament and the Holy of Holies, there was this manifest presence of God. He says, hey, there's no longer a need for a physical temple made out of, of physical stones. He says, you as living stones are, be, are coming together to form this spiritual house, this spiritual temple. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us each individually. But there's also this special thing that happens when we as the body of Christ come together in unity. Beautiful, powerful things happen. Here's the third truth. Because we are God's prized possession and a materialistic world, we are spiritual people. As I just mentioned, Peter's kind of making these parallels between these Old Testament physical imageries and these spiritual realities that we experience as God's prized possession. He's gonna unpack a bunch of things here. I could take a while on each. I'm gonna go quickly. First Peter 2, uh, verse five, and then I'm gonna skip to verse nine. He says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. And then he says, so you're a spiritual house. It's no longer about a physical temple. He, he, he says, it's, it's you, the Holy Spirit's living inside you individually. And as you guys come together as living stones, special things happen. He says, you're a holy priesthood. See, in the Old Testament, there were these actual priests and, and, and they would, would offer these sacrifices. We'll talk here in a minute about that. And, and, and so, but he says, hey, there's no longer a need for priests in the classic sense. He says, that's why we have pastors and not priests. Because the idea of, of a priest, it, it, it infers this idea that I or our other pastors have this direct access to God that you don't have. 
And, and but, but part of what we believe in our tradition is what's called the priesthood of the believers. It's based in part on this verse that, that, that we as followers of Jesus have all been made priests and that, so that we can go and confess our sins directly to God and we have direct access to God and nobody has a special hotline to God more than others and that, that, that we are all priests. See, so he says, you've been in spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So here's the idea in the Old Testament that these priests, they would, they would offer these physical sacrifices, actually killing an animal. And there's this whole picture of it's through the shedding of blood that we have the forgiveness of sins. It's foreshadowing to the ultimate Lamb of God who died for in our place. And so it's this picture of Jesus who would give his own body for our sins, but there would be these actual sacrifices. And so what Peter's saying is there's no longer this need for these physical sacrifices, the ultimate sacrifice sacrifice, Jesus has happened, but your response, living as, as God's prized possession, you now offer these spiritual sacrifices. Now, what does that mean? It means a handful of things. Here, here's the most basic, I think the verse that gives you the biggest clear picture is Romans 12.1. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So for, 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 for me to, to live my life as a spiritual sacrifice, it means that, that I'm, I'm just living in the reality that I've given God my life, given him control as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. He says that is your true and proper worship. And so this spiritual sacrifice, we offer ourselves um, as living sacrifices by living holy lives that please God. Now we see all other places in, in Hebrews, it tells us that this, there's this sacrifice that involves like singing and worship. So even earlier when we're singing those songs to Jesus, if we're doing it with our heart fully engaged as a response to the wonder of who God is, in that moment there's a sense in which we're offering a spiritual sacrifice. Now Paul tells the church at Philippi in this thank you letter for their generosity. He says, hey, your generous giving in this whole thing is like, hey, I don't even need your money. He says, God's taking care of me, but I want you to know that what you did, it was a pleasing sacrifice. And so there are these different aspects, but their big picture is just this living a life where we're living to honor and please God because of our love for him. He goes on and tells us that we are a chosen people and a holy nation. What he's saying is this, he's saying a lot here, but big picture, it's kind of tying back to this theme of this book early in, in 1 Peter where he says, hey, you are strangers or aliens. You are living in a place that is not your true home. And he says, so I want to remind you that no matter what your passport says and, and, and no matter what your citizenship papers say, that, that you are a part of a, no matter where you're living, you are a part of a different kingdom with a different king. You are strangers, you're exiles, you are aliens. He says, you're chosen people and a holy nation. And here's the last thing and we're done. Because we're God's prized possession in an unsettled world. We are stable people. First Peter 2, verse 6, he says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. He's, he's quoting here out of Isaiah. In the Isaiah, we see these messianic prophecies. We're talking about the Messiah who would come, who'd be called this stone or this cornerstone. 
Now, if you're looking, if in the ancient world, if you're building a house or building out of stones, the first thing you do is you would take the biggest, straightest stone that you could find and you'd lay it down first. And as long as your cornerstone was good and it was solid and it was straight, now it was very easy to lay the rest of the stones to create a solid foundation. And if the foundation was solid and the foundation was straight, now it was easy to build up these rocks around it to build these walls. But it all begins with this cornerstone. If the cornerstone is strong, then the whole foundation is strong. And he says this, he says, Jesus is the cornerstone. He says, now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. So here's the imagery. He's saying it's the stone the builders rejected. What he's saying is, is, is those religious leaders of Israel, when Jesus was on earth and, and, and making itself known as the Messiah, they were looking for something else. They were looking for a political leader who would lead a military uprising and overthrow the Roman Empire. But Jesus was clear, I didn't come to create a kingdom of this world. I didn't come to be a political leader. And so because he wasn't, didn't meet their expectations, they rejected him. They said, you're not gonna be our cornerstone. And the imagery is as if the stone was gonna be used in this building, but say, hey, you go put it over there. We're not using it. It's not good enough. It's not what we're after. And then the imagery is this. They move on and say, well, that's not gonna be the, our cornerstone. And then they're just walking around, maybe looking at their phone if they were alive today. And then they trip over this rejected stone. And then the imagery is kind of like they trip over the stone and the stone kind of falls on them and it leads to great injury or death. It's this picture. He says, the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. But it's this picture that, that for us as followers of Jesus, living lives as God's prized possession, that, that, that we're building our lives on Jesus and that he is our cornerstone. And because he's the right cornerstone, the foundation of our life is strong. And so even in a world that's incredibly unstable, I don't know about you, depending on how long you've lived, there's good odds that the last five years have been the, the greatest instability that you can remember. Between all the political weirdness and all the polarization and then the virus, gotten us doing stuff that we never would have ever imagined. And it's like it's such an unstable, uncertain time is what's gonna happen with the virus in the winter and what's gonna happen with inflation and this and that, all this stuff. In this unstable world, we, as God's prized possession, because we're building our lives on the cornerstone, on Jesus, because of that, that it's, like, it's like the old song I sung growing up, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. It's like what Jesus said. He said, hey, there was, there, there was these two guys and one builds a house on the rock. And, and he builds a house on the rock, and the one that builds his house on the rock is like the, is the one who, who takes these words of mine and, and then obeys them. And, and he says, there's someone who builds a house on the rock, and, and, and he builds this house, and then the storm comes. And here's the fact, storms will come. 
And the winds come and the rain comes and this house just kept standing but there was someone else that, that said, I don't wanna build my house on that rock. I'm gonna build it on this other foundation, this foundation made out of sand and they build the house and then it says the rains come, the winds come, the storm comes and that house just collapses because the storms of life will come and life will be uncertain and unstable. But this idea that, that we as followers of Jesus who are building our lives, not on what it means to be American, not on, on what it means to have a good economy, not on what it means to always be healthy and never get sick, not on any of these other things that we could ever build our life upon or upon our own good works or our own good deeds or any of these things. We're building our life on this cornerstone of Jesus. So when life gets crazy, we, in an unstable world, we're still stable. See, Jesus will either be the cornerstone of your life or he'll be this stumbling stone. Any other foundation in your life will be unstable. Here's what Peter's trying to tell this, this church here. They're in a minute, in a moment where their life's about to get incredibly unstable. Persecution, like, like incredible persecution under Nero's about to come. Christians are gonna die so frequently just for faithfully following Jesus. And, and these Christians who are being, viol are being violently rejected by society are told to identify with Jesus who was also rejected by most. He's saying, hey, hey, you're about to face the, the toughest time imaginable. You're about to be rejected simply for following Jesus. But just so you know, he too was rejected. He was rejected by most. The stone the builders rejected. And he, Peter wants these people to understand that their, get this, that their status in the eyes of God mattered more than their circumstances or their status in the eyes of humans. And that though they are dishonored by many and experiencing the greatest difficulty they could ever imagine, they are God's prized possession, alive in him, being formed together into his temple, living as a kingdom of priests, building their life on the true foundation of Jesus. And with this in mind, the challenges they were facing all became smaller in perspective. And the opinions and threats from people who rejected Jesus became so much less impactful in their lives. Here's the final question, we're done. Are you going to build your life on the cornerstone? Are you going to build your life on Jesus? Or, we all have to at some point make a decision about what are we going to do with Jesus? And maybe some of you have been wrestling with this. Like, am I going to hand Jesus the steering wheel of my life? Am I going to trust in, in what the Bible says he's done for me? And that even though I was a sinner, even though I'd done wrong things, said bad things, done things I shouldn't have done, even though I've sinned, that, that Jesus who never sinned, he lived the perfect life I could never live. And that Jesus chose to take the punishment I deserve. He stepped in to take what I had come in my way and to take what you had come in your way. He stepped in as our substitute, dying in our place. But that then he didn't stay dead. He was dead as a rock. 
But then the one that was dead overcame death, becoming the living stone so that we who were dead spiritually, living in our own sin, doing our own thing, ultimately deserving physical and eternal death, that living stone, the one who was dead and overcame death so that I too might be being dead spiritually, facing physical and eternal death, that I too could become a living stone. But we all have to make a choice. And maybe you've been wrestling with this, wrestling with the claims of Jesus, wrestling with what does it mean to give Jesus the steering wheel of my life and to follow him for the rest of my life. But, but here's the fact, every single one of us, just like those people that were alive when Jesus was living, who, who looked at Jesus and said, nope, I'm gonna pass and look for a different cornerstone. And they laid that cornerstone aside that ultimately became a stone of stumbling and destruction. Are you going to build your life on the cornerstone of Jesus or are you going to throw him aside that he's, he's not what I need? He's worthless to me. Let's pray together. I believe some of you, the reason you're here today is because before you were ever born, God knew that this was going to be the day when you went from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive, that this was gonna be the day where, where you begin to live life as God's prized possession, the possession that, that cost him his very life in Jesus dying in our place, rising from the dead, so that you could become a child of God, so that you could become God's prized possession, so that you could, could know that every sin that you've ever committed in the past, and every sin that, that you'll ever commit in the future, that Jesus paid the price. He took your place. And so that death would no longer be a factor for you because Jesus overcame death and now you, he has made you alive as you come to him this morning. And maybe you'd say, well, how do I do that? I wanna do that. Nothing's ever felt more true to me than this. I wanna give my life to Christ. I wanna become a follower of Jesus. Bible really says there's really two big things. The first thing is to believe, really to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. To believe you lived the perfect life you never could. To believe that he died the death in your place, the death you deserve to die believe that he rose from the dead, conquering our greatest enemies of sin and death and hell. First things to believe, the second thing the Bible says is to repent. And really to repent really just means do a 180 and say, God, I don't wanna keep living life on my own terms, going my own direction but I wanna follow Jesus for the rest of my life where I'm no longer in charge, but I'm giving you the steering wheel of my life. And I wonder if some of you this morning, there's something inside of you that's saying, this is what I need to do. There's something inside of you saying, this is the most true thing I've ever heard in my life. And I believe that's the Holy Spirit 
So if that's you, I'm gonna pray a prayer out loud and you can pray something like it silently in your heart. It's not even about the words. It's really just about your heart just crying out to God. But sometimes it's helpful to look back on a moment where we just know that we did business with God. Something like this. As I prayed out loud, you can pray in your heart. You wanna give your life to Christ. God, thank you for loving me when I wasn't loving you for pursuing me when I wasn't pursuing you. And God, I thank you for Jesus who lived the life of perfection that I never could, no matter how hard I would ever try. And God, I thank you that he died on the cross for my sins as my substitute, taking the punishment I deserve. And God, I thank you that he rose from the dead God, I don't want to keep living life where I'm in charge, going my own direction, doing my own thing. God, I want to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. So God, even right now, would you come and live inside of me in the person of your Holy Spirit and take control of my life? Lord, I pray that each of these Lord, would chase after you for the rest of their lives. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Life Church Reno podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages like this, and we'll see you soon.